Welcome back to Psych Your Crime, and I'm your host, Nicole Mann. Guten Tag, bon dia, whatever it is in your country. I always say thank you so much. I never thought I would be doing this for this long. I see so many new listeners in so many new countries. I see Pakistan. I see Israel. I see the Philippines. I'm so, so excited to see all all of you people from so many different countries. I'm so happy that I'm touching people, well, not touching, touching people, but reaching listeners all over the world. It makes me so excited. And as always, you can uh, um, reach out to me through Patreon, my social media, it's at geekflossie on Instagram and Twitter. If you go to my Patreon and, um, Follow me on the Patreon. Um, one of the tiers allows you to request crimes. So if there's a crime in your country that I may not be aware of because it may not have gone international, you can go on the Patreon and there's a tier that allows you to request crimes. Um, so just reach out. I'm always open to talk to fans um, and hear about your feedback. I really, really am so excited that I see that my listenership is growing. I really, really, really appreciate it. And I'm so, so, so excited. So let's get into this week's crime. This week's crime was a sensational, sensational crime that has to do with the old golden age of Hollywood in the silent film era. And it actually is a crime that inspired something called the Hayes Codes. They were these very, very, very strict codes that dictated what could and could not be in uh, movies, in television, in the United States. And it also really, really, really inflamed yellow journalism. Now, yellow journalism or yellow press are American terms for journalism and associated newspapers that present little or no legitimate, well-researched news while instead using eye-catching headlines for increased sales. Basically, tabloids or on the internet clickbait stories. Techniques may include exaggerations of news events, scandal mongering, or sensationalism. By extension, the term yellow journalism is used today as a pejorative to decry any journalism that treats news in an unprofessional or unethical fashion. In English, the term is chiefly used in the US and in the UK, a roughly equivalent term, like I said, is tabloid journalism, meaning journalism characteristics of the tabloid newspapers, even if they're found someplace else. A common source of such writing is called checkbook journalism, which is the controversial practice of so-called reporters paying sources for their information without ever verifying the facts. Now, a lot of people aren't aware that in the United States for a very long time, we actually had laws that dictated that the news, if you called yourself news, it had to be fact-based and the, it had to be what's called sourced, meaning you actually had to check the sources and be able to prove what they were saying. Now, at one point during the Bush, the W. Bush administration, Roger Isles was able to um, get them to change the law a little bit, basically change the language of the law. He was able to lobby to get the language of the law changed. And basically how it was changed was so that 
as long as you put in a disclaimer that this was opinions and that like this was a pundit, this is someone coming in to give you your their opinion of the news, that you didn't have to have it be based in fact. And he did this specifically so someone could create Fox News. If you ever sit down and watch Fox News, the beginning of many of the programs, there will be that disclaimer that this is in fact a opinion show or that many of these are opinions and that the opinions expressed are not facts or that the opinions expressed here, you know, don't, um, are not the actual opinions of the whole channel or the opinions of the station. So there, there is a disclaimer that lets you know that it's not news, it's opinions. And most people don't ever read disclaimers. They don't just go by. And so while it is the most popular quote unquote news channel on cable, the problem is it's calling itself Fox News, but yet it falls under that category that's allowed of opinion based. So it's the spin. There are several cable news channels in the United States that have that opinion-based spin. There's also leftists or um, the liberal channels. They do have those pundits that do the liberal spin. So it's not straight news. It's not sourced. It's not facts. It's their opinion of the news. And many people are not aware of that that many of the cable news channels are actually opinion-based and not fact-sourced. In some countries, it is considered unethical for the mainstream media to do this. In contrast, tabloid newspapers and tabloid television shows, which rely on sensationalism, regularly engage in checkbook journalism. W. Joseph Campbell describes yellow press newspapers as having daily multi-column front page headlines covering a variety of topics, such as sports, scandals, and they use bold layouts with large illustrations and usually color, heavily relying on unnamed sources and unabashed self-promotion. The term was extensively used to describe a certain major New York City newspaper around the early 1900s. And they were battling for circulation. The 150 to 161 aspect of yellow journalism was a surge in sensationalized crime reporting to boost sales and excite public opinion. Frank Luther Mott identifies yellow journalism based on five characteristics. One, scare headlines in huge print, often of minor news. Lavish use of pictures or imaginary drawings. Three, use of faked interviews, misleading headlines, pseudoscience, and a parade of false learning from so-called experts. Four, emphasis on full-color Sunday supplements, usually with comic strips. Five, dramatic sympathy with the underdog always railing against the system. Now, the term was coined in the mid-1890s to characterize the sensational journalism in the circulation war between Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. The battle peaked from 1895 to about 1898, and the historical usage often refers specifically to this period. Both papers were accused of by critics of sensationalizing the news in order to drive up their circulation, although the newspapers did serious reporting as well. An English magazine in 1898 noted, 
all American journalism is not yellow, though all strictly up-to-date yellow journalism is American. So basically they're saying that at that time, anything tabloid would be American, but not all American papers were tabloids. The term was coined by Erwin Ward Wardman, the editor of the New York Press. Wardman was the first to publish the term, but there is evidence that the expressions as yellow journalism and school of yellow kid journalism were already used by newsmen of the time. Wardman never defined the term exactly. Possibly it was a mutation from earlier slander where Wardman twisted nude journalism into nude journalism. Wardman had also used the expression yellow kid journalism referring to a then popular comic strip, which was published by both Pulitzer and Hearst during this time period. In 1898, the paper simply elaborated, we call them yellow because they're yellow. He's basically inferring that they're cowards because they don't print the actual news and they don't send their reporters to really investigate anything. Now, moving on to the scandal. Roscoe Conkling Fatty Arbuckle was an American silent film actor, comedian, director, and screenwriter. Roscoe Arbuckle was born on March 24, 1887, in Smith Center, Kansas. He was one of nine children of Mary E. Gordon and William Gordon Arbuckle. He weighed in at 13 pounds. Oh, Lord, I feel bad for that woman. His father believed that he was illegitimate, as both parents were incredibly slim. Consequently, his, he named him after Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, hence the name Roscoe Conkling Arbuckle, a notorious philanderer who he despised. Why would you name your kid after somebody you despise? That, that makes no sense. The birth was traumatic for Mary and resulted in chronic health problems that contributed to her death just 11 years later. Arbuckle was nearly two when his family moved to Santa Ana, California. He first performed on stage with Frank Bacon's company at the age of eight during their performance in Santa Ana. Ar Arbuckle enjoyed performing and continued on until his mother died in 1898. Arbuckle's father had always treated him badly and now refused to support him. So he got work doing odd jobs in a hotel at eight, or I mean at 11. Wow, that's super harsh. He was in the habit of singing while he worked and a professional singer heard him and invited him to perform in an amateur talent show. The show consisted of the audience judging acts by clapping or jeering with bad acts being pulled off a stage by a shepherd's crook. This went on to happen at the Apollo in New York as well. Arbuckle sang, danced, and did some clowning, but he did not impress the audience. He saw the crook emerging and somersaulted into the orchestra pit in a panic. The audience went wild and he ended up winning, and that began his career in vaudeville. In 1904, Sid Groman invited Arbuckle to sing in his new unique theater in San Francisco, beginning a long friendship. He then joined the Pantages, theater group touring the West Coast, and in 1906, he played the Orpheum Theater in part Portland, Oregon, in a vaudeville troupe organized by Leon Errol. Arbuckle became the main act, and the group took their show on tour. In August 6, 1908, Arbuckle married Minta Durfee, the daughter of Charles Warren Durfee and Flora Adkins. 
Durfee starred in many early comedy films, often with Arbuckle. They made a strange couple, as Minta was short and petite, while Arbuckle tipped the scales at 300 pounds. Arbuckle then joined the Moriscal Burbank Stock Vaudeville Company and went on tour of China and Japan, returning in early 1909. That's when Arbuckle began his film career with the Selig Polyscope Company in July of 1909, when he appeared in Ben's Kid. He appeared sporadically in Selig one-reelers until 1913. Then he moved briefly to Universal, and that's when he became a star and a producer directed by Max Sennett's Keystone Cops comedies. Although his large size was undoubtedly part of the comedic appeal, Arbuckle was self-conscious about his weight, and he refused to get cheap laughs by getting stuck in doorways or chairs. Arbuckle was an talented singer, and a famed operatic tenor Enrico Caruso heard him sing. He urged the comedian to give up the nonsense that you do for a living, and with training, you could become the second greatest singer in the world. Despite his physical size, Arbuckle was remarkably agile and very acrobatic. Max Sennett, when recounting his first meeting with Arbuckle, noted that he skipped up the stairs as lightly as a Fred Astaire and that he, without warning, went into a featherlight step, clapping his hands and did a backward somersault as graceful as a tumbler. His comedies are noted as rollicking and fast paced, have many chase scenes, and feature tons of sight gags. Arbuckle was fond of the pie in the face, a comedy cliche that had come to symbolize the silent film era comedy. The earliest known pie thrown in film was June 1913 and a Keystone one-reeler, A Noise from the Deep, starring Arbuckle and frequent partner Mabel Norman. In 1914, Paramount Pictures made the then unheard of offer of $1,000 a day plus 25% of all profits and a complete, er, er, complete artistic control to make movies with Arbuckle and Norman. The movies were so lucrative and popular that in 1918, they offered Arbuckle a three-year, $3 million contract that is the equivalent of about $54 million in today's money. Wow. He must have been amazing. By 1916, Arbuckle was experiencing severe health problems. An infection had developed in his leg and become a carbuncle so severe, doctors considered amputating it. Although Arbuckle was able to keep his leg, he was prescribed morphine for the pain. He would later be accused of being an addict. Following his recovery, Arbuckle started his own film company, Comic, in partnership with Joseph Schnick. Although Comic produced some of the best short pictures of the silent era, Arbuckle transferred his controlling interest in the company to Buster Keaton in 1918 and accepted Paramount's $3 million offer to make up to 18 films over three years. Arbuckle extremely disliked his screen name Fatty, had almost been Arbuckle's nickname, and since it had been Arbuckle's nickname since school, he knew it would be inevitable. Fans also called Roscoe the Prince of Wales. Oh, that's so mean and the balloonatic, wow. However, the name Fatty identifies the character that Arbuckle portrayed on screen, usually a naive hayseed, not him himself. When Arbuckle portrayed a female, the character was named Miss Fatty, as in a film called Miss Fatty Seaside Lovers. Arbuckle discouraged anyone from addressing him as Fatty off screen, and when they did, 
His usual response was, you know, I've got a name. Now, before we go on to the scandal, that would be his undoing. Here's a quick word from this week's sponsor. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I wanted better gut health. I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great. It doesn't taste chalky or sour like superfood powders or probiotics normally do. It just has this really kind of mild tropical taste that I really, really love. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and aptogens. Some of you know I have Hashimoto's and it causes digestive problems for me. So I've tried a lot of different probiotics and this is one of the best tasting ones I've ever tried. I just drink it in the morning with breakfast and tons of people take different kinds of multivitamins and it's important to choose one with high quality ingredients that your body will actually absorb. So I figured, hey, why not just drink it? For every purchase, they donate to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in needs, including No Kid Hungry here in the US. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com emerging. Again, that's it. athleticgreens.com emerging to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. In early September of 1921, after getting his big contract, Arbuckle was on his way to a party so he could celebrate. He wasn't necessarily in the mood, but he decided, what the hell? He was injured on set. He was in pain because he got an acid burn. Technically, a crime was being committed already because they were serving alcohol, and at the time it was illegal because it was prohibition. Arbuckle and his friends checked into the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. They were on the 12th floor in the suite, and that contained rooms 1219, 1220, and 1221. Now, 1220 was the sitting room. On Monday, Monday, September 5th, the party started early. Arbuckle greeted visitors in his pajamas, although it was the middle of the afternoon. Now, large quantities of liquor were being drunk by everybody. Around three o'clock, Arbuckle retired from the party in order to get dressed because he wanted to go sightseeing with a friend. What happened in the following minutes is hotly disputed. Bambina, AKA Maud Delmont, who frequently set up famous people in order to blackmail them, claims that Ar Arbuckle herded 26-year-old Virginia Rape into his bedroom and said, I've waited for this a long time. Delmont says that a few minutes later, partygoers could hear swims from Miss Rape coming from the bedroom. Delmont claims she tried to open the door and even had to kick it in, but couldn't get it open. When Arbuckle finally opened the door, supposedly Rape was found naked and bleeding behind him. Arbuckle says that when he went to retire to his room to change his clothes, he found Rape vomiting in his bathroom. 
He then helped her clean up and led her to a nearby bed to rest. Thinking she was just overly intoxicated, he left her to rejoin his party. When he returned to the room a few minutes later, he found her on the floor. After putting her back in bed, he left to get help. Others entered the room. They found rape tearing her clothes off, something that people claim she often did when she was extremely drunk. Party guests then tried a number of strange treatments, including covering her with ice, but she still wasn't getting any better. Eventually, the hotel staff was contacted and rape was taken to another room to rest, with others looking after her. Arbuckle left for sightseeing and then drove back to Los Angeles. Rape was not taken to the hospital that day, and though she didn't improve, she still wasn't taken to the hospital for three days because most people who visited her figured that she must just have alcohol poisoning. On Thursday, rape was taken to Wakefield Sanatorium, a maternity hospital well-known for giving abortions. Now remember, at this time, they were highly illegal. In the hospital, she died from an infection caused by a ruptured bladder. Newspapers leapt all over the story. They speculated that her bladder had been ruptured because the nearly 300-pound Arbuckle got on top of her and raped her. That really doesn't make a lot of sense because women's bodies tend to be much, much stronger than that. Arbuckle, however, went ahead and turned himself in, and he was arrested and charged with manslaughter. The district attorney was extremely ambitious, and many believe he just used this case to try and advance. Now, the papers went wild. Some articles stated that Arbuckle had crushed her with his weight, while others said that he had raped her with objects. The papers were incredibly graphic and cruel. In the newspapers, Arbuckle was assumed guilty, and Virginia Rape was painted as an innocent young girl. The papers excluded reporting that Rape had had a history of numerous abortions, with some evidence stating that she may have actually had another one short time before the party. William Randolph Hearst, the symbol of yellow journalism, had a San Francisco examiner cover the story. According to Buster Keaton, Hearst boasted that Arbuckle's story sold more papers than the sinking of the Lusitania. The public reaction to Arbuckle was fierce, perhaps even more than the specific charges of rape and murder. Arbuckle became a symbol of Hollywood's immorality. Movie houses across the country immediately stopped showing his movies. The public was angry and they were using Arbuckle as a scapegoat. With the scandalous front page news on almost every paper, it was difficult to get an unbiased jury. The first Arbuckle trial began on November 1921 and charged Arbuckle with manslaughter. The trial was thorough and Arbuckle took the stand to share his side of the story. The jury was hung with a 10-2 vote for acquittal. Because the first trial ended with a hung jury, Arbuckle was tried again. In the second trial, the defense did not present a very thorough case, and Arbuckle never took the stand. The jury saw this as an admission of guilt and deadlocked 10-2 to convict. In the third trial, which began in March of 1922, the defense again became proactive. Arbuckle testified, repeating his side of the story. The main prosecution witness, Zay Previon, had escaped house arrest and left the country. 
For this trial, the jury deliberated for only a couple minutes and came back with a verdict of not guilty. Additionally, the jury wrote an apology letter to Arbuckle. Now, to note, this is incredibly rare and strange, and I looked and I cannot find any other instance, at least none that, that, that is of record that is out there, of a jury writing a apology letter to um, the person that is on trial, and I actually have the letter. So the letter states, acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. We feel also that it is our only plain duty to give him his exoneration. There was not the slightest proof used to connect him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believe. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take the judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to the evidence that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. But being acquitted was not the end to Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle's problems. In response to the Arbuckle scandal, Hollywood established a self-policing organization that would be known as the Hayes Office. In April 18, on April 18, 1922, Will Hayes, the president of the new organization, banned Arbuckle from filmmaking. Though Hayes lifted the ban in December, the damage was done. Arbuckle's career had been destroyed. Now, here are some of, well, most of the rules from the Hayes Codes. They're kind of, I feel like they're pretty ridiculous, but here we go. No pointed profanity, either in title or by lip. This includes the words God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, unless they be used in reverence in connection with proper religious ceremonies. Hell, son of a bitch, damn, or God, and other profane and vulgar expressions, however you spell them. Any lascivious or suggested nudity, in fact or in silhouette, and any lecherous or licitinous notice thereof by character. Basically, you can't show or talk about naked people, is what they're saying. The illegal traffic of drugs, no inference of perversion. No white slavery. Yep, they said it. No white slavery. You can show black people being slaves. You just can't show white people being slaves. Nothing about sexual hygiene or venereal diseases. Sec basically, they're saying you can't show women douching. Scenes of childbirth or silhouettes of childbirth. No child sex. So no children's sex organs, but adults are okay. No ridicule of the clergy. Willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. They obviously didn't take that seriously. No use of the flag. Internal relations. Avoid picturizing in an unfavorable light 
another country's religion, history, institutions, prominent people, or citizenry. Didn't take that seriously. No arson. Didn't take that seriously. No use of firearms. Didn't take that seriously. No theft, robbery, safe cracking, dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Having in mind the effect, which is a total description of any of these. Once again, didn't take that seriously. No brutality and possible gruesomeness. Once again, didn't take that seriously. No showing of techniques of committing murder. Uh, yeah. Whole movies <laughs> wrapped around. Alfred Hitchcock would not have a career if people took that seriously. No methods of smuggling. Yeah. Actual hangings are electrocutions as punishment. Basically, they're saying you can't show hangings or the electric chair, which I don't think people really did that until like the 60s when people just threw the haze codes out the window and pretended like they didn't exist. No sympathy for criminals. You've never seen Rebel Without a Cause. No showing attitude toward public character. Basically, they're saying that you cannot um, bemoan the man or you can't bemoan the establishment is what they're saying like you can't make an anti-establishment or an anti-government movie that that's those type of films and those type of people were really what mccarthyism went after so no cruelty to children and animals well that should be i mean that should be obvious but whatever no branding of people and animals i mean now they're getting super specific but no sale of women or of women selling her virtue. Well, the sale of women would be white slavery. I don't understand why. Basically, no human trafficking and no prostitution. Uh, no rape. No attempted rape. First night scenes, a.k.a. no one night stands. No men and women in bed together. Fun fact. The first couple that was ever shown in bed together... Many people think that it was Ozzie and Harriet. There's actually another couple. I think it's 1947. I think it's Marnie and Johnny. I believe, don't quote me, but it was them. Then it was Ozzie and Harriet. And then it was I Love Lucy. The reason those three couples were allowed to skirt the Hayes Codes is because they were all married. Other shows at the same time, like the Dick Van Dyke show, I Dream Genie, they all had beds, separate beds that were pushed apart because the actor and actresses that played the husband and wife were not married. Uh, no seduction of girls. You can't seduce anybody. Uh, the institution of marriage. You couldn't show married people. Well, obviously nobody paid attention to that. No operations. Uh, okay. No drug use. That is why there was a movie that came out, I want to say somewhere in the 30s, called Reefer Madness. It was the most ridiculous thing ever. They basically painted it as though if you do marijuana, you're going to turn into a serial killer. You can find it somewhere. Actually, I will put a link down of uh, places it might be streaming. It is the most ridiculous thing you will ever watch it's hilarious it just gives you a look into the mindset of people back then if i can find a link to play it somewhere i'll put it down below even if you may have to pay i'll put links i'll put whether you have to pay or not titles or scenes having to do with law enforcement basically they didn't want you to paint law enforcement in a bad light excessive or lustful kissing 
basically, um, they're saying particularly when one is the heavy. What they mean is the heavy is they're like, especially if one is a player. So I wouldn't know how someone would just look and be like, oh, that's heavy. Like, I wouldn't know just out of nowhere. So that's the type of stuff the Hayes Codes covered. So this trial inspired these ridiculous rules that by the end of the 50s, early 60s, were just completely thrown out the window. So yeah, it didn't last long. For years, Arbuckle had trouble finding work. He eventually began directing under the name William B. Goodrich, similar to the name that his good friend Buster Keaton suggested will be good. Nice play on words there. Will be good. Though Arbuckle had begun a comeback and had signed with Warner Brothers in 1933 to act in some comedy shorts, he was never to see his popularity regained. After a small one-year anniversary party with his new, new wife on June 29, 1933, Arbuckle went to bed and suffered a fatal heart attack in his sleep. He was only 46. That is the story of Fatty Arbuckle a comedy legend. Now you, if you ever can find any of them, you should take a look at his um, shorts. There's comedy reels. They are absolutely hilarious. He was a good actor. He was a great comedian. Um, for a time, people actually really did try and because they believed the tabloids, they did try and say that he, he wasn't even funny. They tried to say people just laughed at him because he was fat. And that really wasn't true. He had really great timing, you know, Charlie Chaplin went through scandals of his own. Nobody ever said that Charlie Chaplin wasn't a good comic or that his shorts weren't funny. So it was really insulting to think that to this day, there are still people who bought into the yellow journalism or the tabloid journalism that tainted his name. And they're still trying to discredit his talent because of it. So in, it's just really, really unfortunate and sad. And if you ever get a chance, please look him up and, and take a look at what the silent era was really like. That being said, join me next week when we look at the story of John DeLorean. That's right. John DeLorean, the creator of the famous DeLorean from Back to the Future, recently his story has had a new chapter and a an, an crazy, crazy, crazy new tryst. So until then, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things. <laughs>